Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Isaiah 42, you can open your Bible there. This is all part of God's defense of himself. He has described his own greatness. And he has compared himself with everyone and everything, putting special emphasis on the gods that men make with their own hands. Come chapter 41, he starts challenging those gods and saying to them, if your gods are anything like me, then let them do what I can do. I can tell you history and the reason for history. I can tell you the future. I can proclaim everything and then bring it to pass by my almighty power. Which of you can do that? And then he mocks them by saying that they are prepared as idols that are nailed to wood so that they don't fall over. And the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps points to the foreign gods and says, and your gods don't talk, they don't speak, they don't think, they can't help you, and they might fall down, which is very unlike Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Then he says that the gods that they make, the gods that they worship, are just like the rulers of this earth, the rulers of this planet, that they're all going to come down to nothing, and that he's going to make the judges of this earth meaningless. And he says they've barely been planted, they've barely been sown. There's no root to them in the earth, and that God is going to blow on them, and they are going to wither. And the storm is going to carry them away. To whom then are you going to liken me? That I should be his equal. And then he says that he calls out the stars, individual stars, by name. That he knows every one of them. And then at chapter 41, verse 24, he says, Behold, you all are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing And whoever chooses you, you idols, you foreign gods, whoever chooses you is an abomination. Chapter 42 begins with God having laid out that charge against human beings that if you choose idols, if you choose anything other than Yahweh, if you choose to worship anything other than the God who alone deserves worship, that is an abomination. You've chosen badly. He starts chapter 42 by saying, let me tell you who I chose. And he's going to describe the Messiah to come. He's going to begin describing what he is going to accomplish by sending his son to the planet. He refers to him as the righteous servant. Prior, we saw Israel referred to as his servant. But now he narrows it down to Christ alone, the Messiah alone, as my servant whom I uphold. 
In other words, he's the one who cannot fail. In contrast to all the other gods who can fail, who can topple over, who can't think, who can't talk, who can't hear, who can't help you in a time of trouble, it is by the omnipotent power of the only God that is that he is going to hold up his son so that his son never fails. Chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold. That's the one that I choose, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. He's the only one that brings that kind of joy, that kind of delight to the soul of God. And that is why it's so important as we get into the New Testament and we read about Christ in us and us in Christ that when we stand before God, we're going to be fully redeemed, spotless, unblemished, because we are accepted in the beloved, in the one who God delights. Lord, haste the day day is absolutely right. Mm -hmm. He is my chosen one. He is my elect. He's the one in whom my soul delights, and I have put my spirit upon him. That language should resonate with you at his baptism. The voice of the father came down from the sky. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That is the same thing that he said at the Mount of Transfiguration. Once Moses and Elijah were gone, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And then after God had spoken from heaven, identifying Christ as he came up out of the water as his beloved son, we read that the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove and landed on him. The very physical, visible fulfillment of what Isaiah says right here, that God is going to put his spirit upon him. And then it's written down in the New Testament. It's announced in the New Testament It's recorded for us that, yes, the Father affirmed him, and then the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came down and lighted on him, exactly like Isaiah predicted. So there should have been no question about who that was. There should have been no question that God was fulfilling the prophecy that Isaiah had written, that God was going to place his own spirit upon that particular one. Never lose sight of this is his elect one. This is his chosen one. This is his servant. This is the one who he upholds. And he is contrasting his choice to all the other choices that men make. Men make all these bad choices. Human beings choose foolish gods, tottering gods, gods that fall down, gods that they make with their own hands, gods that cannot do the things that God can do, Gods that don't know anything and can't tell you anything and can't predict the future and can't tell you why the past happened. And then God alone, the omnipotent God, the God who has all knowledge, the singular God, the one who defends himself by saying, who are you going to compare to me? Who's like me? And then he says, this is the one, Christ. He's the one that I choose. And the contrast is enormous. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Really important language there. He's going to bring justice to the Gentile nations. Even though he is the Jewish Messiah, 
even though he is the son of Yahweh, even though he is the promised redeemer of Israel, nevertheless, he's going to bring justice to the nations, to the Gentiles. Now, last week, we started looking at this phrase that Isaiah uses, the islands and the coastlands. And I told you that that was the most distant lands, the areas where the furthest away people lived within the known world, the non-Jewish Gentile nations who lived out into the coast of Spain and Portugal and along France, and then the islands out into the Tin Islands, out into what we know today as England. And that was the furthest west that the known world went at that time. God is going to, again, use that same imagery to say the nations he is talking about are all the nations of the earth, all the Gentiles of the earth, no matter how far you can imagine them being, no matter how far they exist and how far away from Jerusalem they are, the Jewish Messiah is going to bring justice to those nations. Now, it's impossible to read that without saying that there are several different eschatologies that exist out there, and one of them is known as postmillennialism. And I'm not going to talk a lot about it tonight outside of saying that postmillennialism was very, very popular right around the time of the Enlightenment, during the time of the printing press. Knowledge was increasing so quickly. The church seemed to be expanding so widely. And so there was an eschatological philosophy that said, well, then the church is in charge of making sure that the law of God reaches to all the Gentile nations to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And then Christ will return to receive that kingdom that the church itself has established. The reason I bring that all up is that here there is the declaration that justice is going to come to the Gentile nations. Justice right now is a very big deal in our society at this moment. Justice. People marching in the streets, they want justice. I don't know what they're calling justice these days, but they're marching because they believe that if they burn down enough buildings that somehow justice is going to break out. So whether we're talking about post-millennial eschatology, or whether we're talking about the society in which we live right now, justice in both of those philosophies is accomplished by human beings, is accomplished by people working harder to solve the problems of people. In a few minutes, what we're going to read is that he, Christ, is the one who establishes justice among the Gentiles. There's going to be no true justice on the planet, no true peace from all the riotous ways that people have coursing through their hearts and their minds and now in their actions. That's not ever going to be truly, genuinely resolved until the Prince of Peace returns, conquers the nations with his rod of iron, and he is going to establish genuine righteousness. He is going to bring the righteousness of God to the Gentile nations. That's when the genuine righteousness is going to be established. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The church cannot bring about the kingdom and establish the law among unbelieving Gentile nations. It says right here, he'll do it. Why will he do it? Because God has promised him a kingdom, 
and God is going to uphold him. Therefore, the God who has already said, I'm the only one who can do this. I'm the only one who has this kind of power. I'm the only one who knows the past and the future. I'm the only one who knows every star and calls them out by name. I'm the only sovereign who's in control of the whole universe. I have decided he's going to be the king on David's throne. He's going to be the one who's going to establish justice, and he's going to establish justice among the Gentile nations, and that is the way that genuine justice and peace is going to be established on planet Earth. It's not going to be through the church, and it's not going to be through human effort. It's not going to be through rebellious humans thinking they can bring about justice if they just yell loud enough. Does that make sense? I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 2 is really interesting. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. One of the interesting characteristics of Christ when he was on the planet is that he went about doing miracles and teaching about God, but then he would instruct people not to tell other people about it. He remained private to himself until he was ready, until he could go and present himself when it was his time. His own brethren got tired of how privately he kept himself and said, no one who wants to be known openly keeps himself as private as you do. The feast is happening in Jerusalem. Go up, do miracles. And he said to them, your time is always. My time's not yet. Because he knew that once he revealed openly who he was, that they would begin the process of killing him. And he had a date with the cross on a particular Passover in a particular year. And so it just simply wasn't his time yet. In both Hebrew and Greek culture... (coughs) The way that you would gather a crowd if you wanted to create your own gathering, if you had an announcement you wanted to make, if you had some kind of philosophy that you wanted to advance, if you wanted to bring disciples to your way of teaching or your philosophy, is that you would go out into the streets because they didn't have telegraph or telephone or internet or any of those forms of communication. You would go out into the street and you would cry in the street Come out and hear me. Come hear what I have to say. Come hear my new thinking, my new philosophy, my new wisdom. And you would gather to yourself people who you had called out. That was known as an ecclesia in the Greek. And then you would gather your ecclesia to your place during your time, and you would tell them whatever it was you wanted to tell them. Well, that's why Jesus said that he would build his ecclesia. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The word ecclesia is not unique to Christianity. The word ecclesia is part of typical Greek and Jewish culture. In order to gather people together, you'd go out and you'd cry in the streets. Isaiah says he's not going to do that. He's not going to go and cry in the streets. He's not going to cry out. He's not going to raise his voice. Well, then how is he going to gather his ecclesia considering he said he was going to build it? Well, because unlike all of the man-made versions of gatherings, of ecclesias, of assemblies of people, 
he is not going to do it externally. He's going to gather his people internally. He's going to change their hearts, change their minds. He's going to draw them to himself. He says, no man can come to me except the Father draws him. That effectual calling is an inward drawing that God himself does. And it's completely unlike the way all human beings act. So again, this little phrase in verse 2 is another contrast between the way God does things and the way man does things. Man has to go out and say, come hear me. God enters into people and says, hear him. And that's very, very different. And yet Isaiah predicted it before Jesus even came to the planet. And that's what we read about him. Find somewhere where Jesus, in the Gospels, is walking through the streets begging people to come hear him. It's not happening. Instead, what you find is when he feeds the 5,000, after he feeds them, he then teaches a theology to them that drives them all away till he's down to his 12. He says, are you going to leave also? Well, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. That is the exact opposite of the seeker-sensitive movement. That is the exact opposite of do whatever you do, whatever entertainment, whatever methodology you have to use, do whatever you got to do to attract people to your church. Jesus drove people out because he knew that the people who were going to stay were the ones who God had chosen since before the foundation of the world, the ones that God was drawing. And again, no man comes to me except the Father draws him. That's a completely different paradigm than how human beings draw people to themselves. And Isaiah predicted it. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the streets. Now, verse 3 is usually the only verse in chapter 42 that I have ever heard preached on. And I know a lot of preachers, and I listen to a lot of preaching. And it's very, very common to hear preachers go right to chapter 42, verse 3, because they love the notion of he won't break a bruised reed, and he won't extinguish just the last little bit of flame on the flax. He won't get rid of that. And if you do it right, boy, that'll preach. And I've heard several conference messages that, that really preach that message. But in context, what's being said here is he's going to attract people to himself. He's going to bring people to himself by changing them internally. And he's going to do that with such gentleness that it's going to be like just a dimly burning wick, the last little flame on a candle, he's not going to put it out. And if you have a dimly burning wick, the least little breeze is going to put that out. And yet he's going to move in people in such a way where it's not even going to extinguish that flame. A bruised reed. If you see a piece of old, withered, brown, bent-up, grass in your backyard, a strong wind, or if you walk on it, that's going to snap it. That's going to break it. And yet it says here that a bruised reed, he's not going to break. And a dimly burning wick, he's not going to extinguish. 
and he will faithfully bring forth justice. So while I do like the tenderness of that statement, and while I do appreciate the notion that he is not going to extinguish you when you reach the end of your faith, which is the way it's usually preached, that if you're to the point where you just, you just don't have the strength anymore to maintain your own Christian life and witness, if you reach the end of your rope and you're saying, where is God in all this, it's good to know that he is not going to extinguish you. He is not going to break you. I even heard a preacher out in California once say, he's not going to be the one who does that. You have to do that by yourself. That's just not even <laughs> what Isaiah is getting at. He is describing the way he is attracting people to himself and that he is doing it with gentleness, kindness, grace, love, long-suffering. That's the way he draws people to himself. He doesn't beat sheep into the fold. He's the good shepherd. Instead, he lays his life down for the good of the sheep. If one wanders off, he leaves the 90 and 9, goes to get the one who has wandered off or the one that fell into the ditch, and he puts them on his shoulder and brings them back into the fold. Those are all images of gentleness, of kindness, of loving support. And I think that's what Isaiah is describing here because he puts it in the context of him faithfully bringing forth justice. So, verse 1, he's going to bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, he's going to faithfully bring forth justice. So I have to ask, who exactly is going to bring forth justice to the nations? Jesus. Jesus and him alone. The Messiah alone is the one who's going to accomplish actual justice that is going to be brought to the Gentiles. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. Okay, now in four verses, we've heard three times that he's the one that establishes justice. Is there any vagary there? No. Is there any question about who it is that's going to accomplish justice on the earth and justice to the Gentile nations? He's the one who is going to establish it. And so sometimes, if you look at the world right now, if you saw all the people who were lining up, waiting to riot yesterday, hoping for the acquittal of a cop so that they could burn stuff down, the wickedness of men's heart just looking for any excuse they can to riot in the streets, it's easy for us then to look at the way the world is right now, to look at how crazy the world is right now, to look at how genuinely stupid the world is right now. It's easy to look at it and say, where's this justice we've heard so much about? Where is this kingdom that he said to pray for? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it's not being done now. When is that? It's easy to be discouraged and to start thinking, well, then maybe he's not going to do it. Maybe there is no future kingdom. That would be the all-millennial view. Maybe you become like Peter writes about where you say, well, where is the promise of his coming? Because ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything remains exactly as it's always been. But this verse says he's not going to be disheartened. He doesn't change his intention one little bit. 
He still knows what it is he's doing and when he's going to do it. He's not going to be crushed. He's not going to be uh, eliminated from his plan. He is going to do exactly what God has determined he's going to do. And he wrote it down and left himself a witness that he was going to do it all the way back here in Isaiah. And then 700 years go by. Jesus walks on the planet. You can see why the anticipation was, so now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Because we've been living with craziness in our life and Roman dominion right now and we've been through all these occupations and life is hard for us so you're going to establish the kingdom now and then another 2,000 years passes and there still is no genuine justice on the planet there's still no kingdom where righteousness dwells the will of God is not being done in righteousness on the planet the way that it is promised to be done so it would be real easy to think well maybe he just gave up Isaiah promises us he won't be disheartened, he will not be stopped, he will not be crushed until he has established justice on the earth. So that's a rock-solid promise. First we're told who it is that's going to do it. It's the elect of God, the chosen of God. He's the one that's going to do it. Then we're told how he's going to do it. He's not going to go out in the street and cry out. You're not going to see him begging people to come to him and be part of his assembly, his outcalled. He's going to do it gently. He's going to do it in such a way that he doesn't even extinguish the least little flame. And then we're told that he's definitely going to do it, even though the world at this moment might look like the prince of the power of the air is having a heyday. But he's not disheartened. He's not discouraged. So then neither should we be. We should be going, well, you know, the word of God says he's going to do it. I hope he does it in my lifetime. But they've been hoping that for 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, the Christian church has been praying, thy kingdom come. The Jewish disciples were all told to pray, thy kingdom come. They were anticipating it when he left the planet. Are you going to reestablish the kingdom now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? There's been that constant expectation of the kingdom to come and the establishing of justice on the planet. It just hasn't happened yet. But that doesn't mean it's not going to happen because he's not in any whit discouraged or disheartened from the plan that God has given him. And after all, God has already identified himself as the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of everything who isn't going to be swayed from his plan. He will not be disheartened or crushed or discouraged until he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands, here we go again, the outer distances, the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law, for his nomos, for his teaching, so that he will be instructing the people who at this moment are rebellious, unbelieving Gentiles who have no knowledge of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Through Christ, he is going to bring the knowledge of God to the Gentiles. That's happening now. Is there any place left on the planet where there isn't at least, at very least, the knowledge of Jesus and Christianity. Whether people accept it or reject it, the knowledge of it exists. Mm -hmm. What it needs now is the power of Christ on the planet 
in order to establish his justice on the planet. And he says, even the coastlands, even the people who don't have the knowledge, even the people who are still in rebellion, even the people who are still building their own gods and worshiping them, even those people are waiting. They don't know what they're waiting for. They're waiting for some kind of justice on the planet, some kind of genuine lasting peace on the planet. They're waiting for him. They just don't know it yet. You were waiting for him. You just didn't know it yet until he reached you. That's the same one who's going to reach the nations to establish his kingdom. Now, those first four verses all refer to Christ, and I can say that without doing a great deal of exegetical work. Turn to the book of Matthew for just a moment. Turn to Matthew 12, because Matthew is going to do the exegetical work for us. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're going to start reading at verse 18. Oh, we're going to have to go back before that. Let's read at verse 14. The Pharisees went out. They counseled together against Christ as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from them, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and he warned them not to make him known. That's exactly what I referred to earlier. He's not out crying in the streets. He's not out raising his voice and saying, please come and make me your Lord and Savior. Instead, he is changing people internally and telling people externally not to go out and make me known. He warned them not to make him known in order that what was spoken through the... In order to... Okay, I can read. I promise you, it's the English language. It's my mother tongue. I ought to be able to read this. In order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. So now we know that he warned them not to make him known in order to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah. So all that stuff I just said, I wasn't making it up. I was getting it from here, from Matthew. And then he quotes the four verses that we just read out of Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off. A smoldering wick he will not put out. Until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Okay, so Matthew has just done the necessary exegetical work for us in telling us not only that the Isaiah prophecy applies to Jesus, but the way that Jesus conducted himself while here on the planet demonstrates the fulfillment of what Isaiah said in that he would not cry out in the streets and that he would not be out there raising his voice and that the very opposite of that would be telling people, don't tell anybody who I am because he is in the enterprise of building his ecclesia, his outcalled, his assembly, and he does that 
in the exact opposite way that human beings do it. Back to Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 5. Thus says Adonai, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out. The creator of heaven and earth is one of the most common nomenclatures for God. One of the most common descriptors for God that we read in the Bible is that he is the creator of heaven and earth so that we understand that he is the sovereign maker of everything and therefore the sovereign ruler of everything. Therefore, whatever comes after this, God has taken the time to say, make sure you know what God I'm talking about. I'm not talking about... The gods who can't hear, the gods who can't see, the gods who can't think, who don't know the history, who don't know the future, the ones you have to nail down, the ones who you make with your own hands. That's not the God I'm talking about. I'm talking about the God who made things. He made heaven and earth by his exhaustive knowledge of everything, is in complete control of everything. The God the Adonai Yahweh, the particular God of the Hebrews who created heaven and stretched all the heavens out, who spread out the earth and all its offspring, everybody living on the planet, who gives breath to the people that are on it, which means to make them physically alive, and he gives spirit to those who walk in it, which means that he also gives them the knowledge of their own existence. That's the way he's using spirit here. He's not talking about his Holy Spirit. That is something that he puts on people. But every person alive has two things that are true about them. Number one, they have breath in their lungs. They're breathing. That's part of being alive. But they also have within them that soul that makes them eternal, that gives them the sense of themselves and who they are. All of that is a gift from the one who made heaven and earth. He made your body. He makes your spirit. He makes you alive the same way that he planted stars in the expanse of his heavens. He also gave you the ability to know your own name. He gives breath to the people that are on it. He made every single person on the earth and all its offspring, and he gave the spirit to those who walk in the earth, and this is what that God says. I would add at this point, sit up, pay attention. Amen. When that God is talking, pay attention. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. How interesting is that? This is God talking to Jesus somewhere in some great eternal conversation between the two of them. God promised, I've called you. I have said, you are my elect one. You are the chosen one. You're the one through whom I'm going to accomplish everything that I have chosen to do. I have called you. I am righteous. You are righteous. We're going to accomplish righteousness together. I'm going to hold you by the hand and I'm going to watch over you. That's exactly like him saying, I'm going to uphold him. I'm going to establish him. He's not going to fail because I'm holding him up here 
I'm going to hold him by the hand. That's how intimate their relationship is. I'm going to watch over you. I'm never going to abandon you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to make sure to watch over your every action, which is why Jesus would say things like, I do my father's will always. Everything he did was by his father's will. That's how intimately connected they were. He said, I and the father are one. Well, here Isaiah describes it as we're joined by the hand. He's watching over me. But then God says, I will appoint you as the covenant to the people. What interesting language. The covenants that God has established so far on the planet are the Noahic covenant, which is a covenant with everybody. And the main rule of that covenant is no bloodshed. Then you get the Sinai covenant, the covenant made through Moses with the children of Israel, a completely conditional covenant. You get the Davidic covenant, but that was made to a particular person made to David that his offspring were always going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. So the covenant that the world is under at that point is don't shed blood, and I have established my Ten Commandments and my 613 rules, and by those rules, I'm going to judge absolutely everybody, and that makes everybody guilty. And now he says, 700 years before Christ is here, I'm going to make you a covenant. That's why it's so important that Luke records that when Jesus sat down to take the Lord's Supper, that final Passover meal, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. He identified that his blood was the blood that established the new covenant. That new covenant that is promised in Jeremiah 31. That new covenant that Israel was waiting for for all those years. He's on the planet and says, when I die, my last will and testament is the establishment of the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It is by that covenant then that we are grafted in to promises that were made unconditionally to Abraham through the Abrahamic covenant so that we are saved by grace, by the grace of God, through faith. And the entire enterprise is accomplished through Christ so that God would say, you're my covenant. I'm not going to establish my covenant through bulls, through goats, through the blood of animals. And every covenant that was established between God and men was established with bloodshed. And so God takes the time to say, you're the covenant. Your blood is going to establish the covenant. Then he comes to the planet, takes the wine, says this is the blood of the new covenant. He is satisfying what Isaiah has already predicted about him, that he is the covenant. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentile nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Okay, now we've got to look at both of those. Tom, if you would, look up the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 47, you may read 46 and 47. Because here God has said, I'm going to appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. 
And New Testament authors pick up that phraseology, point at Christ and say, that's him. He's the light to the Gentiles. So we'll let the New Testament authors do the exegesis. Steve, if you would, look up Acts 26. You're going to read verses 22 and 23. If you would, Micah, Ephesians 4, 8, which we actually read just this past Sunday, and then Micah and I actually had a little conversation about it afterwards. Leon, if you would, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, and I will show you the connections between each of those New Testament verses and what is predicted here in Isaiah, because in his life here on planet Earth, Jesus actually accomplished all these things. And the New Testament authors pointed out that he did do these things. So let's start at Acts 13, 47. If you would, Tom, we're going to read about Jesus being a light to the Gentiles. Uh, beginning at 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So when he said, because the Lord has given us this command, he then quoted from Isaiah. He used the scripture as his impetus in order to say, you Jews have rejected this promised gospel. Therefore, we're going to the Gentiles, but look how very sovereignly he places it. He says, we're going to the Gentiles because of your blindness, because of your rejection, but that's exactly the way God predicted it was going to be. It is God who blinded you so that we would go to the Gentiles because Isaiah has already said that he's going to be a light to the Gentiles and he's going to bring justice to the ends of the earth. God sovereignly predicted the future, which is a demonstration yet again in the last two chapters we've read it, that God has said to all the other humans on the planet and all the gods that they worship, he has said, which of you can do what I do, which is tell the past and tell the future. Here's a perfect example of him telling the future. And then it actually is accomplished. It actually happens. Same idea in Acts 26, 22, and 23, Steve. Paul is giving his defense before Herod Agrippa and after stating what he had done and that the Jews tried to kill him, he says, to this day I have had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, we read, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners out of the dungeon. Okay, now the two verses that Tom and Steve read demonstrate that the New Testament authors saw Jesus as actually fulfilling that those things that Isaiah said actually occurred. Now I'm going to argue that the rest of it, that he also opened blind eyes, we know he did that. We've read stories about, about like blind Bartimaeus. We know that he actually opened blind eyes. But we also know 
that from Isaiah's perspective, he has said that God purposefully blinded Israel. And so some Israelites, some Jews did accept Jesus. They did understand who he was, which was the opening of blind eyes, which is why Jesus walked around using phrases like, those who have eyes to see, those who have ears to hear, those were the people who were going to understand him as he went about opening blind eyes, both physically and spiritually. But then we get into this very mysterious language of Isaiah that is equally mysterious in the New Testament, that he will bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness he will bring out from the prison. And yet in the Gospels, we don't read of him ever physically doing that. Now, in the book of Acts, yes, we do see where the apostles were put in jail, put in prison, and then they were released. We do see that, but that doesn't seem to be what Isaiah is getting at here. I think it's connected more to like Ephesians 4, 8, which Micah is now going to read for us. Uh, starting at 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So when he ascended out of the belly of the earth, he took captive some of the captives. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we don't know for sure. We just know that Paul said it. And the speculation based on what Leon is about to read to us is that Jesus went into the belly of the earth to the bosom of Abraham, the place where Lazarus had gone in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. When Lazarus died, he went to the bosom of Abraham. And so Jesus would have gone and preached to them, and then when he rose and went on to heaven, took captivity captive and took a host of people with him, delivering them from Abraham's bosom into their heavenly destiny. That's the way that it is most often speculated. So now we'll hear Leon read and see if that doesn't fit. He's going to read 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. He went and preached to the spirits in prison after he died. That's the sequence Peter just laid out for us. Okay, so that sounds very much like he's going to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. That's what Micah just read. And those who dwell in darkness are going to be brought out of prison. That's what Leon just read. If that is the correct understanding and interpretation of it, then that also was fulfilled. That very mysterious prophecy that Isaiah laid out was also accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I find that fascinating. Mm -hmm. Verse 8. I am Yahweh, that is my name. It's kind of a shame, I think, that God tells us several times in the Old Testament what his name is. He keeps saying, my name is Yahweh, my name is Yahweh. 
And then because the Jews thought that that was too high and holy a name to actually say, they found other language to use. They added the Adonai vowel sounds to it to make Yahoah. We say Jehovah. But they also insert the word Lord here. Capital L-O-R-D, every time you see that, it is Yahweh. It is the proper name of God, the revelatory name of God. God has described himself as being named Yahweh. Right here he says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I think his people ought to call him by name. He keeps saying, that's my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor will I give my praise to graven images. My worship is mine. My praise is mine. And I will not give my glory to anyone else. Now that name Yahweh, that self-revelatory name, is best defined by God himself when Moses comes upon the burning bush. When God speaks from the bush and says, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, Moses asks the natural question, well, who are you? Who should I say sent me? Pharaoh's got a whole pantheon of gods. Which one are you? And so God, knowing that there is this whole pantheon of Egyptian gods, separates himself from all other gods by saying, I'm the one that is. Those gods aren't. Those gods don't exist. Those are the same idols that he's railing against here. And so he says, I am because I am. I am that I am. You go tell Pharaoh, I am sent me. Well, that's the name Yahweh. So you can see why that God, the one who actually is, as opposed to all the gods who aren't, you can see why he would say, I'm not sharing my glory with anybody else because I'm the only one that actually is. I'm not going to share my praise, my worship that belongs to me and me alone. I'm not about to share that with any graven image. So you can see why among his people, he would say, don't you dare worship anything else. Don't you worship graven images. Don't you worship idols. You can see in the Ten Commandments, the big ten, why he would start out with, you have no other gods before me. I'm the one who is. You get no others. And right behind that, no graven images. So God is not kidding around about this idol worship thing because it is an insult to him considering that he doesn't share his worship with anybody and yet people who he chose, people who he called in Israel were off chasing foreign gods, the gods of the Gentiles, the gods of the Amorites. So you can see why God was so offended by it that he would drive them out of their land and take them into bondage and punish them with kinds of punishment that we're going to get into next week in the second part of this chapter. You can see why he would do all that because he is so zealous for his own worship. Okay, I'm going to try to read quickly here so we can finish where I want to get to tonight. Behold, the former things came to pass. That's God, remember, the same God who just said, I declare what happened. And I tell you why it happened. And I'm the God who declares the future. So here he's saying, behold, the former things came to pass. Just like I said, I told you they were going to happen. And then they happened. Although I doubt that God said it with the amount of sarcasm in his voice that I just used right there. 
Behold, the former things have come to pass, so now I declare new things. Now I'm going to tell you the future. I'm going to tell you new stuff that's going to happen in the future. And before they spring forth, I'm going to proclaim them to you. Okay, well, that would be part of Christ is going to bring justice to the earth. Christ is going to bring justice to the planet. And you know that's going to happen. You can have complete confidence that that's going to happen based on, according to God's own argument, based on the fact that he declared previous things and they all happened. Mm -hmm. Now I'm declaring new things and they're going to happen just like the old things happened. Just look at his batting average, for lack of a better phrase. Look at his success rate, which, by the way, so far is 100%. Mm. Look at the way he has declared the future and then the future happened and take that into mind when you think about the things he has said are going to happen that have not happened yet. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing his praise, his worship from the ends of of the earth. This is part of his new declaration. The earth itself, all the way out to the islands, out to the coastlands, the furthest nations, all the Gentiles are going to sing his praise and worship. Is that happening yet? No. I saw several of you shake your head, but the people on the internet could not hear it rattling from up here. No, that has not happened yet, and yet he declares that the nations, the ends of the earth, are going to sing praises to him. And then he describes the entirety of the planet, not just to the coastland, not just to the islands. You who go down to the sea, that means all the way out to the coast. And then everything that is in the sea. And you islands. And all you who dwell on the islands. And in the wilderness. And all the cities in the wilderness will lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. We've lost our sense geographically of what that means. Kedar was a major city in Arabia. The Arabs, to this very day, have been a thorn in the side of Israel, and yet they're going to be the ones singing to Israel's God. Selah is one of the cities of Edom. It is the Edomites who have been such a thorn, especially at this moment that Isaiah is prophesying, have been such a problem for Israel. So what God has just done here is he said, all the Gentile nations, all the way to the coastlands, all the way to the sea, even the people out at sea, even the people in the wilderness, all the cities, the mountains, the plains, the entire planet, they are all going to sing worship to me and even your enemies, even the Arabs, even the Edomites. They're going to sing to me. They're going to come to recognize Israel's God, Yahweh. Therefore, worship me because the end of it is I win. The end of it is I impose my mighty power and bring justice to the nations. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices. The settlements where Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing aloud. Let them shout for joy from the very tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh. 
and declare his praise in the coastlands, the furthest distances. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. Now we're starting to understand how that's going to happen. When Christ returns to establish justice on the earth, I mentioned earlier, he's coming back with a two-edged sword out of his mouth. He's coming back to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Here, Isaiah predicts, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal. That word means heat. He's going to be revved up in his heat. He's going to arouse his own zeal like a man of war. He will utter his shouting. And yes, he will raise a war cry and he will prevail against his enemies. I've kept silent for a long time, says God. I kept still and I restrained myself. Now like a woman in labor, I will groan. In his zeal, I will both gasp and I will paint, and I'm going to lay waste to the mountains and the hills. That's where we're going to pick up next week, because now that he has established who he is and how he's going to accomplish what he's going to accomplish, which is bringing justice to the very ends of the earth and establishing his own worship on the planet, he's going to do it first by bringing a tremendous tribulation to the planet. That's what he's going to describe, and we'll look at it next week. Got it? Got it. How good is that? I mean, it's just wonderful. And so I am a little chagrined by the number of messages I have heard in my life that just take that one little verse, that one little piece out of context and preach on that when there's all this wonderful stuff about God's absolute sovereignty and he establishes the future and establishes that he's going to do it all through Christ. And then you get to the New Testament and you read all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes and amen. So it's a consistent theology throughout the Bible. But one thing we can know for sure is it is going to happen. God's going to do it. Just hasn't happened yet. Well, I hope you leave here tonight one more time thinking, wow. What a God we serve. What a God we worship. Eventually, the whole planet, all the nations, all the coastlands, all the islands, all the seas, all the cities in the wilderness and all the mountaintops are going to worship and praise him. That's what God says is going to be the future for planet Earth. I say, start now. If you belong to him, you have every good impetus to worship and praise that God. I didn't even get a woo-hoo out of that. <laughs> Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.